Oral questions by members? Leader of the Official Opposition. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, time and time again with this government, we see that they are good at making announcements and issuing press releases, but terrible when it comes to getting results. And never is this more evident than in healthcare. One out of five British Columbians cannot access a family doctor. Cancer care wait times amongst the worst in the country. One million British Columbians that are on a wait list trying to see a specialist. Hundreds of thousands that are waiting to get basic medical imaging. And the latest report just came out shows that wait times at walk-in clinics have more than doubled in the last three years, the worst in the country. And just this morning, in the member from North Vancouver Lonsdale's riding, there was a five-hour wait at the North Shore Medical Clinic and at the other clinic at Lonsdale the 19th, it had hit capacity 10 minutes after opening. So my question is this, at a time when we're seeing the worst wait times in the country, when will this Premier and Minister and Government understand that Government is about more than making announcements and issuing press releases, it's about doing the hard work of rolling up your sleeves and getting improved results for British Columbia. Minister of Health. Oh. Honourable Speaker, that's exactly what we're doing. Oh, good. You know, Honourable Speaker. Minister will continue. Minister. The, the Leader of the Opposition contributing as much to health care as he did when he was Minister of Health. Members, 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 Minister will continue. With respect to primary care, Honourable Speaker, uh, last summer, the Leader of the Opposition opposed this. We've put in place new new-to-practice contracts for longitudinal family practice, for family care, for family doctors in the community, for new doctors. Typically, we get 20 to 30 such contracts. So far, we have 109 in communities We sat down with doctors in BC and worked out a new payment model, the most significant reform to primary care in the history of the public health care system. It's been around. And the Leader of the Opposition may not have joined, but in the one week it's been in place, 1,726 family doctors in BC have joined, Honourable Speaker. We are adding 128 new spaces to the UBC Medical School. We're establishing a new SFU Medical School, Honourable Speaker. We are making changes, Honourable Speaker, to make lives and access to primary care there for British Columbians. We've added 30 urgent and primary care centres, and yes, Honourable Speaker, they've served 1.6 million BC patients. That's action. That's the action that's needed now, and it compares, Honourable Speaker, favourably to a leader of the opposition who announced a plan for primary care networks, 159 of them, and delivered exactly zero. Oh.
Leader of the official. Members. Where do I begin, Mr. No, no, Speaker? no. Hold, hold it. Hold. Members, members. Leader of the official opposition has the floor. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. I can't wait to share with the member, uh, you know, headlines like BC number one in healthcare when we were in government. I am certainly happy to share that with you. The member and the minister likes to stand up and spout off sti statistics. He, only this group over here actually think anything is getting better in the healthcare system. Nobody else in the province thinks it's actually getting better. But Mr. Speaker, the fact of the matter is one out of five British Columbians can't get access to a doctor. So those patients that have no attachment to a doctor are, are required, forced indeed, to go to a walk-in clinic. And the problem is when they go to a walk-in clinic, they now face, based on this minister, second term in government. They've been there six years. It's not like he just woke up and six months ago they're trying to make change. This is year six of their government. And when people try to go to those walk-in clinics, they're facing the longest wait times in the country. North Vancouver, the worst in the country, okay, the entire country. In Victoria, the urgent primary care center that he likes to go on about, you know, that was at capacity this morning, 45 minutes after it opened, 45 minutes. And good luck finding an, an, an urgent primary care center or walk-in clinic in some places, they don't exist. I just heard from Blaine and Quinnell, who I met with earlier this summer. And Blaine has had three strokes. He has no family doctor. And he desperately needs to get paperwork signed by a doctor because he's trying to apply for his long-term benefits he's, he's entitled to. And so what does he do? He goes to the local walk-in clinic in Quinnell. There's a sign in the door saying it's permanently closed. Then when he phones that minister's urgent primary care center that he likes to go on about, the receptionist says there won't be a doctor here for another six days. Drastic change is needed. And the fact of the matter is this premier has really made it clear that he is going with the status quo, not just with this minister that's failed for six years, but with the other 64 vice presidents earning $400,000 a year in the healthcare field. And now we find out another high price, price consultant, Penny Ballum, working in the premier's office. So I just have a simple question to the minister on behalf of, of Blaine, who asked me to ask you, despite, despite all the high-priced vice presidents, 64 of them, they've got seven in Alberta, despite all the high-priced vice presidents and all of the executives and the high-priced consultants in the Premier's office, why can't Blaine find a doctor to fill out some basic paperwork so he can get his long-term benefits? Members, before I recognize Minister of Health, I want to remind uh, all members not to use any props while you're asking questions or answering the question. Minister of Health. Oh. Member. Don't do it. Minister will continue. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. You know, Honourable Speaker, um, I think some people believe, some people, that you keep repeating the same thing that's not true over and over again. 
Members, okay, members. Honorable Speaker. Okay, members. Members. Minister will continue. Minister. Honorable Speaker, they keep repeating the 64 vice presidents over $400,000. It's false. It was false when they first said it. It was false last year. It's still false. And the fact is, and, and Honorable Speaker, it's not like they don't have access to the information. They have the information. Here are the facts. If they're interested in the facts, I suppose, it's that we had, um, when I became Minister of Health, 64 vice presidents. We have 64 vice presidents now. We have added, it's true, six vice presidents for Indigenous Health, an action that was supported by the official opposition. That's, those are the facts. What are the facts? That the increase in salary for, uh, for vice presidents and the health authorities is less than collective agreements. Those are the facts. And so people can keep repeating stuff all they like, and a number of members of the opposition have repeated this fact. It's just not true. And I think that, and I think, <laughs> Honorable Speaker, um, uh, Honorable Speaker, I know that uh, they don't want to hear the answer. The answer, the answer is that the way that you change primary care is to fundamentally work with doctors and nurse practitioners and nurses to change the system, and that's precisely what we're doing. You know, we can listen to the leader of the opposition, or we can listen to the 1,726 doctors who signed up for the new payment model. We can listen to the leader of the opposition, or we can listen to the 98.5% of resident doctors who supported the agreement that we negotiated with them to improve primary care for all British Columbians. Speaker, our healthcare professionals and our healthcare workers, often treated with utter contempt, in particular by the leader of the opposition, over the years they were in office, protected with utter contempt by the Honourable Speaker, deserve our thanks and appreciation for their extraordinary work during this three years of pandemic, Honourable Speaker. They deserve better than this, Honourable Speaker. They deserve our support, our commitment, our investment and change, and that is what they are getting. Member for Prince George Vilmount. Well, the Minister knows that not one person on this side of the House has treated healthcare professionals with disrespect. We have stood up day after day and supported them and thanked them. The person that we are concerned about is this minister and his lack of action for six years. And that answer is exactly why British Columbians have had it. Because Blaine Members. deserves better than that. Blaine is simply asking for this minister come to, order, to find please. a way to get his paperwork done. And it's not just Blaine, and the minister knows it. And it's not just wait times in walk-in clinics. Today, as we speak... Members, please continue. Today, as we speak, there are literally hundreds of thousands of British Columbians that are waiting without timely access to absolutely essential diagnostic imaging. Yesterday, in fact, I heard from someone, a woman who is absolutely in agony, waiting for imaging. Maybe the minister would like to speak to her. Think about it. She's been in constant pain for seven months, even though the benchmark, the maximum, is 60 days for the procedure. 
And now, she's been told that the Jim Pattison Outpatient and Surgical Centre in Surrey will not book or perform CTs, scans, for any patient that is considered level 3 or 4. So to be perfectly clear to the Minister, this isn't about the staff there or anywhere in the system. They are doing their utmost to meet the needs of British Columbians. Is the Minister aware of that situation at, at Jim Pattison? And if he is, what is he going to do about it? Minister of Health. Well, Honourable Speaker, on the issue of diagnostic care, here's what we've done. In British Columbia in 2017, when I became Minister of Health, there was one MRI machine operating 24-7. There are now nine, Honourable Speaker. There were four operating... <laughs> there are four, Honourable Speaker, operating uh, 19 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Before I became Minister of Health, there are now 19. In 2017, we completed 174,000 MRIs. Those are people in BC. Those aren't numbers. The worst record in the country. We've reduced the 90th percentile wait time, which is a major measure by more than 100 days since they were in government, Honorable Speaker. We've gone from 174,000 MRIs to 300,000 in a pandemic in four years. We did it by training people and by providing better service and using our public health resources more. And yes, in Surrey in particular, adding three MRI machines, three MRI machines. We've also increased CT scans by 220,000 people, every one of them an individual, every one of them needing that care, every one of them referred by a doctor, Honourable Speaker. So, Honourable Speaker, on individual issues, the member will know this. I will always talk to people, always engage with people, always take cases from members of the opposition from everywhere else to address issues of individuals. But the record is clear, and the worst place in BC get an MRI before I became Minister of Health. It was in the Northern Health Authority. 22 per thousand against an average in Ontario of 66. That was the record after 16 years in government, Honourable Speaker. And we've more than doubled that, Honourable Speaker, in five years. We did it, Honourable Speaker, because it is critical for people to get diagnostic care when they need it. I'm happy to look into the case brought forward by the Honourable Member, but the record is clear. Well, the Leader of the Opposition, when he was Minister of Health, left MRI machines idle. We are using them all the time to deliver better care. Member for Prince George, Prince George Wailmont Supplemental. Well, I could assure you that that is exactly, that answer is exactly why British Columbians are frustrated. The minister ignores the fact that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of British Columbians in pain waiting for services. In fact, the, the woman that I spoke to yesterday, here's what she said about this minister's record, and I quote, we've got to the point where we can't get sick, end quote. So again, to the minister, when is he going to stop dismissing the pain and agony that thousands of British Columbians are experiencing? And the minister can roll his eyes, but I can tell you this, that every single MLA in this legislature hears from British Columbians virtually every day about the weights and the pain and the frustration. When is he going to acknowledge it and fix the problem? Minister of Health. Well, Honourable Speaker, when you're talking about diagnostic care, you fix the problem by adding diagnostic care to 
to ensure that... And the leader of the opposition is living in some sort of world. I don't know what world it is. Well, honorable Speaker. He, members, he, he's members. He's so, living in some sort of world. He, he, apparently, I wonder if he's ever, if he's been to Surrey recently. I know he used to represent it, Honorable Speaker. But in Surrey, Honorable Speaker, in Surrey, Honorable Speaker, yes, he sold the land, Honorable Speaker. In Surrey, he sold the land. But I'll, I'll say this. They needed a hospital, he sold the land, and now he pretends to care for them, Honourable Speaker. <laughs> Honourable Speaker, the way that you advance diagnostic care is to do more diagnostic care. And the facts are the facts. You can look at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, his record terrible, our record one of the best in Canada, Honourable Speaker. Uh, uh, Honourable Speaker, clearly they're in on some sort of conspiracy over there at Kai High, Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker, 174,000 to 300,000 in four years is an extraordinary achievement, not by me, but by technicians, Honourable Speaker, by radiologists, by people in the system. It's their success. The reduction in wait times is their success, and we have to continue to do more. But that is an exceptional change, Honourable Speaker, adding machines so that people don't have to go and get private care with their own money and then come back into public health care, creating two-tier care. That's the Leader of the Opposition's response. But delivering care in the public health care system full on all the time, and that's what we do in diagnostic care. I am happy to look at any case brought forward by anybody, Honourable Speaker. Leader of the Third Party. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Two days ago, we heard in the throne speech, quote, people who work hard and play by the rules need someone on their side. Your government will be there for you. My question is to the, the Premier. Can the Premier explain why Cowichan Tribes contractors who work hard and play by the rules do not have the government on their side and cannot benefit of helping to construct the $1.45 billion Cowichan District Hospital Replacement Project. Minister of Health. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. Thank the member for her question. Uh, the Cowichan Hospital Project, Honourable Speaker, is a critical project for healthcare on Vancouver Island. I'm very proud of the project. We're adding uh, 52 new acute care beds. You know, Honourable Speaker, uh, leader, leaders set examples, and uh, that leader keeps setting an example, Honourable Speaker, but I'm going to answer the question, Honourable Speaker. When you, uh, uh, a hospital project that ought to have been built probably 15 years ago is being built in Cowichan now. It's going to significantly improve acute care services, significantly improve mental health services, allow us to address surgery needs in a community that is now underserved for acute care because of its growing size and, uh, and the community. So that's what we've done. In, uh, in, on uh, the project, Honourable Speaker, it's clearly important to remember. We've had meetings that she organized that I've been at in her community on this project. I understand it's important to her. It's important to the uh, member for Nanaimo Cowichan as well and for all of their constituents. So on the question that she's raised, we've had ongoing uh, conversations with the Cowichan tribes. 
And we've worked to bring all parties together to involve, to share information and talk through challenges. And that's how you solve issues. As a result, the Couch and Development Corporation is now eligible for work on the Couch and Hospital site without a change to their workforce. Leader of the Third Party Supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. We have John Coleman in the gallery right now of John Co. Contracting, who has not been allowed to work on this site, a member of Couch and Tribes, a man who has for 30 years mentored Indigenous people in the trade, and who in October had the job at the site of clearing the land and then was told he would not be given any further permits to work at the site and that he and Kowatson Development Corporation are not part of the specified unions identified in the somewhat ironically named Community Benefits Agreement. What's interesting, Honourable Speaker, is that this change appears to have happened on November 8th, when BC Infrastructure's Benefit and Allied Infrastructure and Related Construction Council, the two organizations who are empowered by this government to oversee the Community Benefits Agreement, they signed a letter of understanding removing the ability of Kowatson Development Corporation, John Coleman, and local contractors to be able to work at the site, a change that left John and his colleagues out of work. Let's quote directly from the Community Benefits Agreement, quote, to ensure that individuals, communities, and businesses in the local area have full and fair opportunity to participate in the benefits of the project. That is certainly not the case for John Coleman. This is a long way from reconciliation. Question, member. This government seems to have underestimated the power that they gave to BCIB and AIRCC who in essence are excluding Indigenous peoples and local contractors from a project that has been community-led and community-driven for decades. Mm -hmm. This is a project question that member. this community has moved. My question is to the Premier. When can John Coleman and the other companies in Cowichan expect to be able to work on the hospital that is being built on Cowichan Tribes territory? Minister of Health. Honourable Speaker, I answered the question. They're now eligible, and they'll now be working on the project. But I, I think that what I would say about uh, this important project is I agree. This is a project that people in Cowichan have fought hard for, believe in. Uh, our MLAs does. I know the MLA does. The community does. Uh, the site has been developed with local communities and local First Nations. Uh, and the, and uh, we've worked together to bring everybody together to succeed in that. The result of that is that all of the community benefits agreements that uh, the member referred to um, um, in the way that she did, uh, all of them are living within 100 kilometers of the site. 25% are indigenous. The average on such a site would normally be 6%. Those are real successes out of a process that was designed to promote local hire and community involvement. But as I said in answer to the first question, because I think it's what she wanted to know, 
The answer was when? The answer is now. They're now eligible. Opposition House Leader. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Well, first, uh, listening to the, to the previous interaction there, I want to I start off by saying uh, how refreshing it is to hear that the Greens have finally come around and no longer support these community rip-off agreements. Here, here. After, after, after supporting them for all those years, propping up the NDP government. But, but my question today relates to uh, uh, the, the NDP's decriminalization, of, uh, um, or the decriminalization policy. Um, the overwhelming focus of this government uh, on the decriminalization of hard drugs like crystal meth, fentanyl, heroin, and cocaine, with limited access to treatment and recovery, Mr. Speaker, this is doomed to fail badly. Almost a year ago, there were very specific requirements outlined in the letter of requirements from the federal government to this NDP government with respect to decriminalization. But since then, this government has not done the work, but they've pressed forward with decriminalization. No definable metrics, no plan for public safety, complete failure to provide services in rural communities, and a very limited uh, access to the treatment that people need when they need it in order to get better. Now, the government house leader prevented the minister from answering this question yesterday, so I'm going to ask it again today. Uh, why is the government allowing decriminalization without ensuring that people can access the treatment that they need when they, that they need in order to get better, and can the minister explain what are the specific baseline metrics and measurements for evaluating the success or the failure of this NDP experiment? Here, here. Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to, uh, to the member for the question. I, I, you know, I think that in the face of a poisoned drug supply crisis that is killing more than six British Columbians a day, we are compelled to use every single tool in our toolbox to save lives. And decriminalization is one of those tools amongst a number of other, a whole continuum of tools that we are using, including massive investments in treatment, in counselling, in recovery uh, opportunities, in safe supply for, for British Columbians. We spend over $2.6 billion in this province uh, on mental health and substance use. We have added to that a $500 million investment in 2021 to ramp up treatment beds. We've added hundreds of treatment beds. We've doubled child and youth treatment beds. So there is no question that we, that, that we understand we have to do all of the things in, in this space to, to protect and support British Columbians. With respect to the conditions that Health Canada uh, uh, set down with, uh, in regard to our application for decriminalization, uh, Health Canada clearly approved our application. The federal government, uh, all of our stakeholders and partners, law enforcement, public health, frontline physicians who provide care for people who use drugs, people with lived experience who have been through what it means to lose family and loved ones to toxic drug poisoning, stood with us as we moved forward to initiate this, uh, th this, this pilot project to use one tool in our toolbox to try and protect British Columbians. We are taking action 
to expand treatment, to engage with our stakeholders, to, to scale up Indigenous-led uh, solutions, to conduct public education and outreach, to reduce the stigma and fear associated with drug use so that we can try to ensure that the British Columbians can connect to the care and support that, we, that they need. And we will continue to do that work, Honourable Speaker. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And not a day goes by that the members on this side of the House aren't confronted by constituents and family members desperately trying to seek help for their kids and their loved ones and their family, and help that just doesn't exist. Unfortunately, Mr. Speaker, this NDP government insists on burying its head in the sand when it comes to decriminalization of crystal meth, opioids, and cocaine. This government wouldn't even acknowledge it in their throne speech, in fact. This government won't acknowledge that, there, that it hasn't even met the very specific criteria in the federal exemption letter allowing this experiment to happen, a letter this government agreed to. One year ago, they were supposed to be ensuring that individuals who desire treatment or other supports can access them when needed. It hasn't happened. One year ago, they agreed to be putting in place a substance use system of care and meeting the unique needs of specific regions and communities, such as those in rural and remote communities. That hasn't happened. One year ago, they agreed they needed to be educating the public as part of a comprehensive public education plan and engaging with communities. That hasn't happened. Mr. Speaker, these are directly out of the letters of requirement from the federal government. <coughs> And one year ago, it says right here, data collection will need to start immediately upon the granting of the exemption to establish a baseline. A year ago. This government has had a year that they were supposed to be collecting data for the baseline. That hasn't happened. And we couldn't even get an answer out of the ministry yesterday because the House leader decided to stand up and avoid the question. So again, why hasn't the minister met the very specific criteria set out in the federal exemption letter, when will the minister release the baseline data that was supposed to be being collected over this last year? Minister. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And, and, and I have to say that I think that British Columbians were uh, looked at the process that we were all collectively engaged in last year, last, uh, last year through the Health Standing Committee and the support, the, the, the support for all of the recommendations in that, in that report by all parties, including decriminalization. I think that folks can take some hope that we're all collectively working together to support British Columbians through what is an absolutely unrelenting public health crisis. And as we work to, Members, to do that please. work and to make the investments, which include new outpatient withdrawal management services in multiple locations in the interior, new treatment and stabilization beds in Kamloops, Kelowna, Lillooet, and Prince George, adding 105 treatment beds, expanding detox beds in the North Island, all of that work we are very grateful to have the collaboration and cooperation from our partners in health authorities, from frontline providers. And again, we will continue to do the work to take action, to ramp up services and make the investments that are necessary. The bell ends the question period.